Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we had another very volatile day today on Wall Street, and it really got started last night with the news of the arrest in Canada of the CEO of a Chinese company, and her father uh, is the founder of the company and a very prominent, obviously powerful, influential man in China. And so this set this mood. The Dow, I think, futures dropped initially about 500 points as soon as the story broke. Obviously, anything that may throw a monkey wrench in the supposed deal that was made over dinner, mano a mano, uh, down in South America uh, between Trump and G, and and so this was something that caused some problems. The market kind of clawed its way back. I think we were down maybe 200 and change, but then we started selling off again early in the morning. And when the Dow Jones opened up, I think we were down maybe about 400, 500 very quickly, and we sold off. Uh, almost down 800 points. The Dow was down about 780 points on the lows. And this is following yesterday's uh, basically market holiday uh, to commemorate and honor the memory of the late President George Herbert Walker Bush. Many people might have watched the funeral on, on television. And But, you know, that day of uh, of commemoration, that day of mourning, didn't uh, do anything to stop the carnage on Wall Street. What it took was an article that came out later in the day by the Wall Street Journal. And that article basically said that the Fed was considering a new wait and see strategy after the December rate hike. And the odds of a December rate hike, which are coming up, what, maybe in a week and a half or whenever we're supposed to get that hike, the probability is about 75%, which is lower than it was at, at one point. So there's still a chance, right, that the Fed doesn't hike in, in December. But according to the Wall Street Journal, the new wait-and-see attitude doesn't take place immediately. This is after the, uh, the December hike. So for 2019, the article suggests that maybe there will be even fewer rate hikes than the markets believe. After all, you know, this was, again, uh, a, a life raft being thrown out uh, to the markets uh, trying to help. And it did for today because, you know, the Dow managed to close down, I don't know, about 70, 80 points, something like that. It didn't close positive, unlike the Nasdaq, which actually did close positive. It rallied about 200 points off the lows. That's a pretty big rally to close up about 30 points. But the media, of course, is going to pay attention to this big rally, right? Oh, the Dow had a 700-point rally. Yeah, but it still closed negative. And another index that closed negative was the Russell 2000. In fact, that index is the weakest of the major indexes because it's the only one to take out the recent November low, and it took out its October low. Uh, so on a chart, the Russell 2000 
looks the worst. And I think that's just a leading indicator of what is likely to come for the uh, the rest of the market. And it's ironic because early in the year, the Russell 2000 was everybody's favorite. I mean, if you wanted to play the Trump boom, the Trump economy, the way to do it was the Russell because that was the pure play on America, right? We were the, 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 the best economy, the hottest economy. And if you didn't want to get bogged down in international problems, potential trade war tariffs or, uh, you know, the dollar going up or whatever people were worried about. The pure play was the Russell 2000. And now that is the index that is looking the weakest. And so what that is showing is this markets are going down. This is not about problems overseas. This is about problems right here in the United States. That's why the Russell is as weak as it is. Of course, today was a horrible day for the financials. I mean, some of these things down 4 or 5% today, 52-week lows pretty much all around. I mean, not just Goldman Sachs. In fact, Goldman Sachs was one of the stronger uh, stocks on the day. It wasn't down that much compared to uh, City Citicorp, uh, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, the other big banks. I mean, they were just getting pounded to new lows. The home builders actually uh, had a bit of a dead cat bounce today. Uh, but everything was weak until we got this news from the Fed that, you know, turned a lot of the tech stocks around and got the market moving higher. And I don't think, again, this does anything because, A, it doesn't take the December rate hike off the table. And if the Fed raises rates in December, then all the problems that already exist because of higher rates are going to exist bigger because rates will be going up, which means mortgage rates will be going up. Right? Everybody is going to see their debt service costs go up. And one of the major problems, the big drag on the economy now, is the fact that debt service costs have already gone up. And so if the Fed adds to that pain, by following through and making another rate hike in December, well, then it's just another weight on the economy's back. The Fed is not talking about not adding that weight. In fact, they're still talking about raising rates more in 2019. They're not talking about stopping. They're not saying one more and done. They're saying one more and we're going to wait and see when we should do the next hike. I mean, that's not that substantial a change from what they've been saying. But again, it was enough to cause some of the shorts to cover, maybe some people to bottom pick in this market. But again, this is the slope of hope that the bear market is uh, falling. And now people can take comfort in this big intraday rally and lose sight of the fact that the market was down. It was another big down day, lots of carnage, lots of blood uh, in the streets, uh, in the markets, yet they're going to uh, you know, take some solace in the fact that we rallied. This was not a big technical reversal. This was not capitulation. This was not the end of the decline. Uh, it's just another typical weekday where some kind of news comes out and the market could hope that it's going to mean something. What I've said is that the Fed is going to have to not just talk about slowing down the hikes, They've got to take the hikes off the table. In fact, that's not even going to be enough. They got to cut. They're going to have to reduce interest rates back down to zero and do QE4. And even that may not help initially. I mean, it may help eventually because inflation is going to cause the price of everything to go up. It's just that the price of stocks will go up a lot more slowly than the price of everything else. 
But, you know, the economy is going to continue to weaken, and that is a big factor in what's driving the market lower, including, in particular, the Russell 2000, which is uh, you know, more vulnerable to domestic weakness because it's a pure play, right, on the, uh, on the domestic economy. We got the numbers that came out today for the October trade deficit. And the consensus estimate was for a $55 billion deficit, which is a big number, uh, following last month's $54 billion number, which was also big. Well, we revised last month's higher. It went up to $54.6 billion. And the October number came out at $55.5 billion. So the deficit expanded at a quicker pace than was expected to expand. And we went back to the prior month and, and made that deficit even worse. So this deficit that we just printed for October is the biggest deficit in 10 years since 2008. And if you strip out energy, it is the biggest deficit ever. Now, if you just look at China, our trade deficit with China in the month of October was the largest trade deficit we've ever had in one month in history. Now, you got Donald Trump, right, is out there claiming that since he's been elected president, we're no longer losing, right? We're winning on trade now. Not that we've got a surplus, but that we've turned the corner, that we're making progress, that America has the hottest economy, that all the jobs are moving back here, all the production is moving back here. Yet the deficit with China has never been bigger than it is right now. And that's despite the fact that we have tariffs, right? Trump has been talking tough on China. We got all these tariffs. And what do we have to show for it? Nothing. I mean, by Donald Trump's own um, a yardstick, the U.S. is losing bigger on trade now under his administration than it ever has in the past under any other administration. See, Trump says that all these other idiot presidents let China take advantage of us, let China steal our wealth. Well, they're taking advantage of us more now. If you're just going to judge it on the deficit, if the deficits are bigger under Trump than under any other president, well, then China is taking more advantage of us now than they were then. So what is all this tough talk? What is all this tariff man stuff doing uh, if you know we ha we're losing more now than ever before? But again, this is just more proof to that the whole story of the U.S. renaissance, the booming U.S. economy, is a bunch of nonsense. If the economy was booming, really booming, we wouldn't have these big deficits. I mean, when did we have these big deficits 10 years ago? That was at 2008, before the bottom dropped out of the market. Why did we have big deficits in 2008? Because we had a bubble economy. That's why, because Americans were spending phony wealth based on a real estate bubble to buy a bunch of imports. If we had a real economy, a real recovery back then, we would have been producing more. We would have been importing less because we would have been making more stuff ourselves, not only for our own citizens to buy, but to export. So the same thing is happening now. We've got another bubble economy, and so we have these huge trade deficits as Americans spend this phony bubble wealth on imported products. You know, a lot of people are talking today, and I read some of these articles. What the fear is, right, is that the Federal Reserve is going to make a policy mistake, right? The policy mistake is going to be that they tighten too much, right? They raise interest rates too high, 
and, and tip the economy into recession, right? That's what everybody is worried about, that we have a policy mistake by the Fed. Also, we have a policy mistake by the Trump administration, right, with the tariffs. Uh, but the monetary policy mistake is that the Fed hikes too much. And so people are saying, hey, the Fed should just stop hiking rates because we don't want to risk this mistake. We don't want to make the mistake of, of being too tight, of hiking too much and, and creating a, a recession. And all of this is a, a bunch of nonsense, right? This is not the mistake, right? The, the Fed's policy mistake is not going to be raising rates too much. That, I mean, the mistake was lowering them as much as they did in the first place. The mistake was keeping them that low for as long as they did. That was the mistake. Once they did that, they were done. It didn't matter on the hiking part because no matter how slow or how fast they went, they were going to prick their own bubble. That was the problem. That was why for a while I thought they wouldn't raise rates at all. I thought they were smart enough to recognize this. And of course, I overestimated the intelligence of the Fed once again. These guys actually thought they could pull this off. Well, now they're finding out that they can't do it, right? The easy part is getting hooked on drugs. The impossible part is kicking the habit. And that's what we're finding out. But even if the Fed were to stop hiking rates right now and leave them right here, it's not going to matter. The economy is still going into recession. This over-leveraged economy has so much debt that we can't even afford 2% rates. So it doesn't matter what the Fed does at this point. It's, it, it, it already made the bed that we're going to be lying in. The biggest mistake that it's going to make, of course, is cutting rates back to zero again, which it's going to do. You know, once the economy is back in recession, the Fed's going to go back to zero. They're going to do QE4. Why? Because they think it worked. Because they believe it worked last time, so they're going to do it again. It didn't work last time. That's why we have to do it again. The Fed just doesn't get that, right? They just repeat the same mistakes over and over again because that's the definition of insanity, and these guys are all insane. So they're going to do it again, and they're going to they're going to be comforted by the fact that they think it worked last time. It didn't work. It just enabled them to kick the can down the road. It's not going to work again. It's impossible for it to work again. And you know now they're they probably have a false sense of uh, of security that all this money printing isn't going to cause inflation. When of course all the money printing is the definition of inflation. But because last time they printed all this money to do QE one, two, and three, and look, the CPI never really went up, right? So hey, all the people like Peter Schiff that were talking massive inflation, runaway inflation, hyperinflation, they've all been proven wrong. Well, we're all going to be proven right when they do QE4. The Fed just doesn't know that yet. They think it's going to inflate another bubble in the asset markets. There's too many holes in those bubbles. It's impossible to blow them back up again. The only thing that the Fed's going to inflate with QE4 and ZERP again is the cost of living. It's going to be consumer prices that go through the roof as the dollar goes through the floor. And that is the ultimate policy mistake. That is the, the final mistake. So forget about this, you know, we're at risk of making a mistake. I mean, those horses left the barn years ago. We already made the mistake. Now we have to deal with the consequences of the mistake. You know, it's not rocket science and kind of it amazes me how few people can understand such a simple concept, right? You go back and look at the 2008 financial crisis. What was that? That was a, a debt crisis. And how did we get all that debt? Well, one of the reasons we got so much debt was because of the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve uh, slashed interest rates down to 1% following the rather mild recession 
that started in 2001 after the dot-com bubble bursts, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We had a recession and the Fed fought that recession and basically truncated the recession because it would have been a more severe recession had the Fed not interfered. Uh, But the Fed slashed rates to 1% and left them there for a little over a year and then slowly normalized them back up to five and a half over a couple of years. But during that period where interest rates were artificially low, the Fed inflated a real estate bubble, right? And that bubble popped, but the real estate bubble was about debt. Mortgage debt. Mortgages is debt. You're borrowing money. Homeowners were borrowing more money than they could repay. And of course, we still had all sorts of other debt in the U.S. economy, but mortgage debt in particular was impacted by by that bubble. And so we had a financial crisis based on all that debt. And when that financial crisis led to a recession, this time much deeper than the shallow one that we had in, in 01, what did the Federal Reserve do? They repeated the mistake. They lowered interest rates this time to zero. They kept them there for six years, seven years. And then slowly, slowly, they started raising them. And here we are three years later, and we're at 2%. So interest rates have been artificially low for nine years. And we have inflated the mother of all debt bubbles. So since the debt bubble is much bigger now than it was back then, you know, the national debt now, we're getting close to $22 trillion. Whatever it was back then, it was, I don't know, $8 trillion or something like that. I don't remember exactly. Uh, but we have much higher credit card debt, student loans way higher than they were back then, auto debt way higher. Uh, so we have all this debt, corporate debt. Everybody's all levered up. This is a much bigger debt bubble than the one that popped in 08. And so the crisis that's going to ensue is going to be bigger. The recession that is going to be necessary to repair the damage is going to be deeper and longer lasting. I mean, that's just, you know, that's simple uh, economics. And of course, what's going to exacerbate it all is there's no more stimulus. There's no more Band-Aids. There's no more quick fix because when the Fed reaches into its bag of tricks again, right, it's going to blow up. It's going to be massive inflation. So the next recession is going to be stagflation. It's going to be recession and inflation at the same time. So it's going to be much, much worse uh, than the one that we had before. You know, we got the jobless claims again out today. Uh, last week, jobless claims hit a six and a half month low. And this week, we actually revised last month's number up a notch from 234,000 to 235,000. So even worse. But we pulled back uh, this week. Claims went down to 231,000. But that was higher than they were looking for. They were looking for a move down to 225,000. So a bigger print, and the four-week moving average moved up from 223.75, which was slightly upwardly revised, to 228. So again, I think that we've bottomed out in claims and that claims are moving up. But I said before, my one, I think last week's podcast, that if we get above 240,000 claims, then I think that will really uh, chart-wise kind of Uh, put in the bottom. So right now I'm kind of speculating, but I'll have more evidence to support that view if we get above 240,000 claims. You know, we also got the ADP employment report out today. That report was supposed to come out yesterday, but it wasn't released due to the the holiday. So we got it today. We got 179,000 private sector jobs, according to ADP, created in the month of November. I think that's about in line with estimates. I mean, I think some people were looking for a higher number than that, but that was kind of about what they were looking for. Last month was 227,000. They took that down a notch to 225, but the big number comes 
comes out tomorrow. The November non-farm payroll number, I think they're looking for 190,000, 200,000-ish uh, jobs. I mean, we'll see. I mean, there's been no real indication that tomorrow's number is going to be a disaster. One of these days, it's going to be a disaster. One of these Fridays, we're going to get a number and we're going to have massive job losses, a uh, big increase in the unemployment rate. Of course, the Fed will be completely uh, you know, caught off guard by that. But uh, I don't think that it's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, but we'll see what kind of number we get and how the market is going to react. A lot of people think that maybe a weak jobs number will help the market because it will take away the specter of additional rate hikes. I don't think so. I actually think a weak market at this time would be bad news for the stock market because it would confirm that the economy is not as strong as the markets anticipated and therefore the earnings growth that has been baked into this market uh, needs to be priced out. And so I actually think a weaker than expected number will be bad for the market. Of course, people will be watching wages. Uh, the worst thing for the market might be a weak jobs number as far as creation, but a higher print in wages, which gets people thinking uh, more fearful about inflation and, and the Fed. You know, speaking about the Fed, the, the Central Bank of Canada yesterday, you know, while we were on holiday, the Bank of Canada came out and made some statements basically acknowledging the weakness in the energy sector, which obviously is going to impact the Canadian economy. It impacts our economy, too, but not to as large a degree as the Canadian economy. And that maybe the, the central bank is not going to be able to follow through with some of the rate hikes that the markets are expecting. And of course, the Canadian dollar tanked immediately on on those statements and it was down again today but you know what traders don't really seem to get is that the u.s economy is actually in much worse shape than the canadian economy as far as where it's headed i mean we're going to have a much harder landing than canada and i think when the dollar really starts to tank and commodity prices respond by rising well you know canada has a glide path back up which the united states doesn't but the main difference is that at least the canadian central bank is being a little bit more honest or candid in admitting that, you know, there's a big problem. The Fed is still in denial, right? And either they're just lying about it or, they, or they're just that clueless. Uh, but they're still talking as if they're going to keep on hiking rates. And so that's why you're seeing the, the relative strength. But ultimately, if the, if the currency traders understood, they wouldn't be selling the Canadian dollar and buying the U.S. dollar. I mean, if they're worried about uh, uh, the Canadian dollar, they, they'd be buying a different currency, uh, but not the dollar because the dollar has got, got a worse problem. What, you know, whatever disease Canada's got, we got a we got a larger case, and and so our economy is going to be even more impacted. It's just that we don't want to admit that. You know, I was talking too just a minute ago about the potential debt crisis that is coming, and apparently, and I didn't even see the interview yet, but I was reading a couple of the articles. I posted it up on my Facebook page. But Donald Trump was asked by a reporter. Uh, if he was concerned about a potential future debt crisis because of all the debt that we're running up, particularly the debt that he's running up. I mean, obviously, he didn't start it. He inherited a gigantic debt, but he's not doing anything about the problem. He's making it worse. The deficits are, are going up under his watch. And his response was that he didn't care about the debt crisis because by the time it happens, he won't be in office anymore. And so it won't be his problem. Now, it's almost, you know, incredulous that he would actually admit that, you know, I mean, a lot of politicians think that, but, you know, Donald Trump maybe doesn't have that that filter, right? He just says what's on his mind. And so he said what other politicians 
never want to say that they're only they only care about themselves, right? They only care about looking good while they're in office. They couldn't give a shit what happens after they leave office because that's somebody else's problem. But the hope for Donald Trump and my hope for Trump too when I voted for him, not that enthusiastically, but I just didn't want to vote for Clinton. Uh, but my reason was that maybe Trump would would think beyond his presidency and look toward posterity, be a statesman, be above it all, right? Try to actually do stuff to make America great again. Because if he wants to make America great again, he can't just say, I want to make America great for the four years I'm in the White House or the eight years if he thinks he's going to get reelected. I mean, I don't. But, you know, if that's all he cares about is, you know, just, you know, just, uh, you know, putting a little lipstick on the pig while he's uh, the president. So everything looks okay. But if it all falls apart after he leaves office, he doesn't care because it's not his problem. I mean, it's the country's problem. And, you know, if you want to make America great again, you have to think about the America that exists when you're no longer the president. You got to think of the America for our children and for our grandchildren. But if you say something like, well, I don't care about a future debt crisis because I'm not going to be president. So what the hell do I care? That shows that he doesn't care about the country. He let it slip. I mean, you're supposed to hide that. I mean, he's not the first politician not to give a shit about the country. Most of them don't. They're all there to serve themselves. They pretend they care about the country because they want to get votes. You can't get elected saying you don't give a shit about the country, but vote for me because I just want to be president because, you know, I get a lot of power and I get a lot of I get, I get a lot of chicks or I get a lot of money or whatever it is. Right. I mean, you can't say vote for me for those reasons. Right. So you have to say I care about the country. But here's Donald Trump basically saying he couldn't give a shit about the country. Now, one thing that Donald Trump said that I agree with is he said that he's not going to be president when the debt bomb explodes, right? And he's not going to be. But, you know, there's a good chance it explodes in 2021 or 2022. And he's not going to be president in 2021, 2022, because he's going to be a one-termer, you know? And one of the reasons he's going to be a one-termer is because he has that attitude. But, you know, it is possible that this whole thing explodes, uh, you know, in the next presidential term. I don't think the debt crisis is going to happen this year. I mean, I think it could start. I think we could start to see the dollar falling and uh, the recession happening, but I don't think the crisis will happen right away. I think the dollar is going to fall for a while. Rates are going to rise for a while. It's going to slowly build up and then it's going to just implode all at once, but that could easily happen uh, during the term of whoever uh, succeeds uh, Donald Trump. But I don't think that he will be in office when the debt bomb explodes, except that it's probably going to explode a lot sooner than Donald Trump thinks. He thinks it's probably going to happen, you know, 10, 20 years from now or something like that. But of course, even if you think it's that far away, you need to be concerned about it. I mean, presidents, if they care about the country, which obviously doesn't, you know, you've got to think ahead. And, you know, what separates a statesman from a politician is actually trying to do things that in the long run benefit the country, even if in the short run uh, they don't benefit your popularity or even if there's some short-term pain. You know, Donald Trump put out another tweet today where he said that he thought that his popularity would be at 75% right now if it wasn't for the Russia witch hunt, right? Based on all the great things he's doing for the economy, he doesn't, under, you know, he thinks the only reason he's not more popular is because of, of this wish hunt. I mean, obviously, that's not the only reason. I mean, there are a lot of problems in this economy. Uh, Trump is claiming credit for a lot of victories that he hasn't won. So there are a lot of reasons that he's unpopular. And the Russian witch hunt is probably the least among them. 
but yeah, maybe with a few people. But the fact that he is so you know preoccupied with his approval rating shows that he is a politician. He's not a statesman. A good president, a statesman, somebody who really wanted to make America great again, wouldn't care how unpopular his decisions were if he knew the decisions were for the good of the country. And whenever you have to make sacrifices, whenever you have to be the bearer of bad news, you're going to be unpopular. And what we need is leaders who are willing to do things that are unpopular. Trump wants to only do things that he thinks are popular. Now, you could say, well, you know, the tariffs, right? He's doing the tariffs, which are unpopular. They're unpopular with some people, but they're popular with other people because they don't understand them. And they're popular with some key constituents that Trump needs to to win a re-election, which are factory workers in the Rust Belt that somehow feel that these tariffs are what are going to bring back their good jobs. Now, they're not. it's not going to happen, but I think when Trump is doing this, this is all politics. It's not about doing what's good for the country because he's already proven, if you didn't know, based on his statement today, that he doesn't care about a future debt crisis because it's not his problem, because he won't be in office. That shows he doesn't care because it's the country's problem Right. But he doesn't care about the country's problems. He only cares about his personal problems, his personal political problems. And so he is going to sacrifice uh, America. He doesn't care about America ever being great again, so long as he gets reelected and gets to pretend that the economy is great while he's in office. But, you know, since so many people still don't get this right, I mean, even when the Dow was down almost 800 points today, right, and the NASDAQ was down like 170 or whatever, I mean, gold was never really up more than a couple of bucks. And actually, a part of the day was down. I mean, it finished up maybe a dollar or so, but no movement into gold, even when the dollar was down. I mean, early on, the dollar was going down against the euro and the yen. It was up against, you know, some of the commodity related currencies, but it was down against the European currencies and the yen. But even that didn't spark a rally into gold. And again, you know, gold is creeping higher. I mean, you know, it's not going down. Uh, but it's not taken off because people still think the Fed's going to keep hiking rates because they still think the U.S. economy is is growing and they think it's in good shape. I, it's not going to be until that narrative changes. You know, the strength of the U.S. economy is really called into question, not just that it's slowing down a little bit, but that we're headed back into recession. Now, you know, people don't even realize how bad the recession is going to be, that it's going to be so much worse than the last one. I mean, they'll figure that out later. But they just got to realize that we're going into recession because if we're going into recession, then the Fed is cutting rates. And that's what's going to cause gold to explode. Now, it should be exploding now, but it's not. And the fact that it's not is just creating an opportunity for other people to buy. And, of course, part of the problem is that the dollar is not really going down for the same reason is that people still have all this confidence in the U.S. economy and believe the Fed is going to keep on raising rates, which is why you know I keep urging my clients to take advantage of this, take advantage of other people's lack of understanding of what's going on uh, by getting rid of your dollars, getting rid of your domestic assets and loading up on these uh, foreign stocks and gold stocks and precious metals and things like that, because I think the returns are going to be spectacular. You know, in particular, I want to talk a little bit about clients who are, you know, nearing retirement age or in retirement age, because I have this conversation a lot, but they had a client that I talked to today that had initially told his broker that he wanted to close his account. He'd been with me for a while, but that now he was 58 and getting nearing retirement and he wanted to take, you know, take on a different strategy that he still believed in what I was saying. And that if he was a younger guy, 
uh, you know, he would stick it out. But, you know, since he's now older and getting near retirement, he wants to take less risk. And so he wants to do something different. And so, you know, I got on the phone with him to talk to him because I think that at this particular stage in his life, and he's not that much older than me, first of all, but the biggest risk that he has that he's facing is inflation is a big rise in the cost of living. And he can't escape that risk by, you know, getting out of his portfolio that I'm managing. I mean, he's, you know, he's got a wrap account with me. And so he's got money in my funds and, uh, and, and he's thinking of adopting a more wall street cookie cutter portfolio that he thinks will be safer, which will be in U S bonds and, 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 and U S, you know, S and P 500 stocks. And to me, that's would be the most risk that he could take relative to what I'm doing. I mean, sure. I mean, I've got risk because we're investing internationally, right? There's risk. We got currency risk, but you got risk when you're investing domestically. And personally, when you weigh the risks between investing offshore and investing in America, I think the risks in America far outweigh uh, the risk of investing internationally, especially in the types of uh, stocks that we're buying. And particularly if you are older and nearing retirement, because remember, we talked about all this debt. We have this huge debt bubble. When a nation borrows more money than it could ever repay, it's got two choices. It can default or it can inflate, right? This is when, of course, it borrows in its own currency. Repaying the debt isn't even an option because that's impossible, right? So it's either we get rid of the debt by defaulting on it, honestly, or we inflate. And the most likely path of least resistance for any politician is to inflate. Right. Because, of course, you can always blame the inflation on somebody else. Right. On OPEC or uh, the Chinese or whoever you want. You know, but if the government defaults, you know, obviously they've got no one to blame but themselves because they're the ones that did it. So politicians will opt for inflation. But that's not a get out of jail free card. Right. Because that means the debt is not repaid. It's just inflated away instead of defaulted away. But the losses are there. And the people who are going to get hit by those losses are people who have savings, people who have bonds, people who have financial assets. They're going to get wiped out. Now, if you're younger, let's say you're 25 years old and we have hyperinflation. All right. I mean, it's going to be tough economically, but you don't lose that much because, you know, you haven't saved that much. I mean, most 25 year olds haven't saved anything. In fact, if anything, they've got debt, right? They've got student loans. Inflation wipes that out. So if you've got debt, I mean, inflation can help you, right? Because it takes away your debt. But what it does is it destroys the assets because your liability is somebody else's assets. The people who get clobbered the most by inflation are older people, right? People who have saved more money. Because first of all, when you're 25, even if you have some savings, your life savings, I mean, how much could you have saved? You haven't lived that long. And if you get wiped out to inflation, well, you got 40, 50 more years, you could work. You can earn it back, right? So you're okay. I mean, all right, I, you know. I, I lost some money, but okay, big deal. I mean, I'm going to keep working and I'll, I'll rebuild it. But if you're 60 years old or like this guy, 58 years old, I mean, most of his earnings are behind him. The high, his high earning years are gone. He spent all this time accumulating his wealth, his savings. If inflation wipes it out, he's done. He doesn't have another lifetime to earn the money back. It's it's gone. And he's he's got a lifetime of savings. He's been saving for 20, 30 years. And now inflation wipes that out. You can't come back from that. So the key is, as you get older, and if you're nearing retirement age or you're already retired, my strategy is actually more important now than at any other point. Again, the young people can earn it back. They've got 
time on their side. If you're 60 years old, you don't, right? You know, you're you're on the back nine. I mean, you're not even the back nine. You're on the final, what, four holes or so. You need to coast in. You can't blow everything that you've accumulated over a lifetime. And so after I got on the phone with this guy and kind of explained the risks of staying with me versus the risks of, you know, you know, taking a, a, a domestic approach to U.S. stocks and bonds, I think he he understood because he's like, yeah, I, I think you're right, um, but I don't want to take the risk. Well, th- the risk is that I'm right and then and, and you get killed. But, you know, even if I'm not right, just an objective look at relative valuations looking at where the U.S. economy is and the U.S. stock market is and the U.S. dollar relative to where we're investing. I mean, clear, even if you're not gloom and doom on the U.S., you can make a rational decision that now is not the time to be going into U.S. stocks and bonds. Now is the time to be going international and and buying some gold stocks. Even if we weren't going to have a major U.S. meltdown, you would still want to do that. Now, the fact that I think we're going to have that meltdown, we're going to have that collapse, well, that just makes the strategy that much better. But you don't have to have, you know, that apocalyptic of, of view to come to the same conclusion. Since I'm talking about the apocalypse, let me finish up this podcast by looking at some of these cryptocurrencies, which are not quite having an apocalypse, but it's on the way. I mean, as I am speaking, Bitcoin is back around 3600 You know, if we break below that 3500 uh, level and really break below it, then I think probably the next stop is going to be to take out 3000 But if you look at a leading indicator, I think, of Bitcoin is the altcoins. Look at the other cryptocurrencies that are much weaker. In fact, as I am recording this, Bitcoin is now at 55% of the market share. And if you look at that chart, it's about to explode bullish upwise, whereas Bitcoin is can continue to gain market share. But it's going to be gaining market share of a shrinking market because the altcoins are going to be losing value faster than Bitcoin. And that's why Bitcoin is going to be gaining ground. You know, when Bitcoin was losing market share, it was in a, in a growing market. When all these other cryptocurrencies, and there's over 2,000 of them, but as these other cryptocurrencies were being created and, and being bid up, that was bringing down the, the relative percentage value of Bitcoin. But as the bubble is deflating, it's going the other way. And of course, Bitcoin is seen as, you know, probably the, the blue chip of the the crypto universe, right? It's the oldest, it's the best known of the crypto. So I guess when you're de-risking your crypto portfolio, uh, you know, maybe people are moving out of the altcoins into Bitcoin, right? Kind of like, you know, people selling their momentum stocks and buying more defensive stocks. The problem is Bitcoin isn't defensive. It's only on a relative basis. So anybody seeking refuge, uh, you know, from Ethereum and Bitcoin, they're still going to lose. They just might lose more slowly. But we're starting to see these other currencies crack through milestones. Right now, uh, the total market cap of all the cryptos, this is a new low for the year. Uh, we're just hanging on to $115 billion, uh, as I talk, $115.4 billion. But a lot of these uh, currencies are, are, are cracking through some milestones. Ether today cracked through 100 as I'm recording this, it's 94 spot 49 uh, right now. This currency topped out at almost 1400 in January of this year. So we're down like 93% or so intra-year for uh, Ether. Another popular currency, cryptocurrency, that's cracking through a milestone is EOS. And, you know, EOS is very popular with a lot of the people that have followed Brock Pierce over here to uh, to Puerto Rico, 
EOS actually topped out in March or April, I think, of this year at better than $21 a coin. Today, it just cracked below $2. As I speak now, it's at $1.93. So this thing is crashing down. I suppose if you want to move to Puerto Rico, this is good news if you're looking for a condo in Condado, because I think some of these crypto guys, you know, uh, bid up the market earlier in the year. Uh, a lot of the condos that they bought could be up for sale, and and they're certainly not going to be in here bidding for any new ones. You know, the other problem that we're going to have is the tax law selling that is still going to come, I think, between now and the rest of the year for currencies like EOS and, and Ethereum, because... If people sold some of their Ether or EOS early in the year when the stock was at the highs, right, they cashed out. Remember, EOS was 50 cents before the run-up, and so it went from 50 cents to $21. I mean, I'm sure some people hit the cash register. Some people sold right, and, and, and took profits. Same thing with, with Ether when it was up near $1,400 in, in January. Some people sold. Now they have a couple more weeks, three more weeks to offset those gains in the same tax year. You can't wait till next year. Otherwise, you know, you can't carry it backwards. So I'm sure there's still a lot of people that have some realized crypto gains that want to offset those gains with other crypto losses. The problem is in order for you to sell out, somebody else has to be willing to buy in. But the supply of suckers is rapidly deteriorating when it comes to cryptocurrencies, right? Because the, the you know the, the the shine is off that. I mean, all the fear of missing out is being replaced by the fear of losing out, right? People are going to lose money. I mean, you look at how much uh, EOS is down. So EOS is down ninety percent, but it could drop another ninety percent just as easily. Same thing with Ether. I mean, if Ether drops another ninety percent from here, it'll just be back at where it was in January of two thousand and seventeen. You know, why should it be worth any more now than it was then? I mean, in fact, it wasn't worth anything then, so it shouldn't be worth anything now. The only value in these things was as a speculation because the price was going up. Well, price ain't going up anymore. Price is going down, and it's going a lot lower. And people are in denial, but they're in denial in all the bubbles that are popping, right? People that own stock market, they're in denial, right? They they don't want to admit this is a bear market. They want to admit it's a another opportunity to buy the dip. You have the same mentality playing out in the crypto hodlers. They want to look back and make irrelevant comparisons to Bitcoin when it was in its infancy, uh, when it moved you know, down 90% routinely when nobody knew about it and it was insignificant market cap and people were playing with their, with their lunch money and stuff like that. But now that it's finally, you know, you know, come out and it's embraced and it's huge news and it's all over the place and market cap of these cryptos went up to what seven eight hundred billion dollars it was all over the world everybody knew about it right that was it and now the thing has imploded you know it's imploded as much now as when it was obscure and nobody knew about it i mean the game is over but they just don't want to admit it. Nobody wants to admit it. You know, they want to hold on to the hope that they're going to be millionaires and billionaires as this whole thing evaporates. But it's the same mentality. It's obviously, you know, on display on a bigger scale in in, in cryptos because what people are believing in is maybe even more irrational. Uh, and, and, and they're buying stuff of complete, you know, no value whatsoever. Uh, but it's th this is the attitude that is permeating all of these bubbles. All these bull markets die like this because people are in denial. They don't want to sell. They ride the market down. And at some point, obviously, it, they, they give up.
But, I mean, we're a long way from that in the stock market. We're a long way from that in the crypto market. We're, we're a long way in the real estate market and the bond market. I mean, as the air comes out of these bubbles, everybody's in denial because a lot of people don't know it's a bubble, right? The people in cryptos didn't think it was a bubble. They thought everything else was a bubble. You know what people would tell me when I said Bitcoin was a bubble? Their response is, no, Bitcoin's the pin. We're pricking the bubble, right? Everybody can recognize every other bubble except the one they're trapped in. That's the problem, right? You, you, you can't see the one that you're in. And, and so uh, the crypto people don't see the bubble in the stock market, but plenty of people in the stock market saw the bubble in crypto, like Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett. They were very good at describing uh, a bubble in Bitcoin, but they couldn't see the bubbles that they were in, right? Because one person's bubble is another person's bull market. It all depends on, on your perspective. Anyway, tomorrow we've got the uh, non-farm payroll coming out. We could have a lot of action in the market, so I'll probably follow up with another podcast. So uh, make sure and not to miss it. And again, tell your friends, right? Make sure people are listening uh, to the Peter Schiff Show. This is where you're going to get the real story. You're going to get the real news. You're going to get the facts. The rest of it is fake news. So uh, make sure and uh, you know review my podcast. Uh, put the stars on there. Follow me on Twitter. I've been putting out a lot of tweets and, uh, you know, friend me or like me, whatever it is on Facebook. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. You know, I'm over 230,000, I think, now subscribers on my way to a quarter million. So let's see if we can increase uh, that pace by having people spread the word about uh, about the Peter Schiff show, about my podcast, the YouTube channel. So more and more people know the truth. It is important. We are headed again for a major, major crisis, much worse than 2008, much deeper recession. Everybody's going to blame it on free market capitalism because that's, you know, the, the, the wrapping paper uh, that, uh, that Trump has, uh, you know, uh, put this economy in. And it's not the free market. It's not capitalism. The problem is Trump continued the failed policies of the presidents that went before him. And in some ways, he expanded those policies. And so as all the socialists are saying, I told you so, capitalism doesn't work, somebody's got to be out there that has some credibility that can defend capitalism and, and, and point out the real problems. And a lot of these Republicans who signed on uh, to this phony Trump bubble are going to have no credibility. Nobody's going to want to listen to what they have to say because they were saying how great it was right before it imploded. I told the truth when Bush was president, and I'm telling the truth uh, when Trump is president. I'm not being partisan. I'm just being honest, right? If I'm going to call a spade a spade, and if I think a Republican is doing something wrong, I'm not going to just pretend he's doing it right because I'm because I'm Republican, even though even though I'm not. I mean, I'm more libertarian than I am Republican. But I, I between the two parties, obviously, I more closely rely with Republicans. But Republicans and Democrats together are responsible for the crisis that's coming. They've all got their fingerprints on it. But the one thing that's not responsible is capitalism or freedom or the Constitution, if we really followed the Constitution and had free market capitalism and individual liberty, we wouldn't have these problems. We would have enormous prosperity. America would be greater than it's ever been. There would be no comparison between the way what America could have been and what America is if we had only stayed true to our founding principles. You know, no sooner did I finish recording this podcast when I read something on the internet and I may have overreacted to my discussion of Donald Trump and his comments about not caring about the national debt or a debt crisis because when it, you know, when it becomes a crisis, he's not going to be there. 
I thought that this was referring to a recent statement, but apparently the original article was from the Daily Beast, and apparently the alleged comment was made like a year or two ago. And so uh, it, it wasn't something that just recently happened. And of course, I think the source was anonymous, so it might not have happened at all. Trump may not have actually said that. It simply could be another example of fake news and me just biting on it. So if in fact... Trump never actually said those words, and I need to apologize for everything that I said uh, because I would have accused the president uh, unfairly. But I don't want to go back and erase everything that I said because it's possible that he did say it. So in the event that the quote is accurate and Trump said what he is alleged to have said, then everything that I that I said earlier is true and I stand by it. But if it turns out that it's fake news and the president didn't say that, I mean, maybe he said something similar to that. But let's say he said nothing of the sort. Then I owe uh, Donald Trump an apology. And and if that's the case, then I take back everything that I said if Donald Trump did not actually utter those words. But, you know, we'll see. But I'm just going to put that out there so everybody knows that potentially uh, Donald Trump maybe cares a lot more about the country than anyone who would make a statement like that uh, would, would, would actually care.